As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, it's been a glorious two-week vacation. Usually when I go away for a vacation, I can count on something earth-shattering happening in college football, like Jim Tressel getting fired, as it happened one year. But as far as I can tell, not a darn thing happened in the sport over the two weeks I was gone. Well, that's true. But, Stu, in your other love, where you have become this, this scoop maven on the NBA beat, uh, there was all kinds of chaos and all kinds of huge news. So... That was kind of a balance. Maybe, maybe on your on your on your A on your A beat, it wasn't big, but on your B beat, now there was a lot of stuff going on. Well, first of all, I find NBA free agency to be more fascinating than the NBA actual games. Uh, they're just they're just trading teams. Guys are just trading teams left and right, and every contract salary announcement that they make is more absurd than the last one. But I assume you're referring mostly to the arrival of one Kevin Durant here in my backyard in the Bay Area. Yes. Uh, is the rumors true that he, for the time being he may be staying at your house to, uh, till he finds a new place? No, that would be a pretty long commute for him. So, no, I don't, I don't think he's going to do that. But uh, can you think of another situation like this where in any sport where a team on paper, it doesn't always play out this way in real life, obviously, on paper would appear to be as historically loaded as a team that's going to have Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and now Kevin Durant. I mean, I feel like, you know, in baseball where there aren't the salary restrictions, I mean, the Yankees over the years, there have been several times where they, they you know, put out like a murderer's row kind of team. I mean, the counter to what you're saying, and I, I, I do think they're going to be the overwhelming favorite to, to win the title. But, you know, Zsa Pachulia is now your starting center. I mean, that's not, you know, that's – that's not exactly the best starting five in the history of the NBA. Well, what's going to happen is, um, you know, there's going to be these expectations that they will just roll. And, well, first of all, the other guys, the existing Warriors, have been playing together for four years. So it's not a given that Durant would just step in from day one and, and the chemistry would be unaffected. And then there could be injuries. I just, I, I would guess that they'll have some, it could be a little bit like LeBron James' first year in Miami, where they kind of feel each other out. 
But even in that situation where they were the supposed super team, that team had three superstars. This team has four. I can't think of another NBA. I mean, the Bulls won all those titles with, you know, Jordan Can and Pippen. Can we star, stars? Are we going to call Draymond Green a superstar? Uh, he Okay, stars would be better, but he was an all-star. I mean... They have four. They're basically going to trot out four all-stars, four, actually five guys who who would have played on the Olympic team if they weren't, uh, like if Curry wasn't skipping it. Uh, it's, it's insane. But, you know, now they're under a circumstance. It's interesting how they went so quickly from the, kind of the fun, easygoing team that everybody liked to watch to they will clearly be the villain uh, this coming season. I'm going to give you a team that it was in my lifetime. I don't know if you remember it, um, which had definitely NBA star power comparable. I mean, it's it's lost. It's not a Laker team or whatever, but it's an old Sixers team. It's the Maurice, you know, it's, it's the Maurice Cheeks was the point guard who was great. You know, Julius Irving and then Moses Malone, who was at the peak of his career, and the other guy was Andrew Tony. Um, yeah, you throw, you could, you know, that's that's some serious firepower there. That doesn't even speak to the great Celtics teams or the great, you know, the great Laker teams. One last thing on this. Do you think as or do you agree with me how stupid it is and and kind of like generic throwing this out just to be contrarian the idea the, the criticizing him for 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 leaving Oklahoma City I mean is there any other walk of life where somebody would be criticized for leaving an employer they've been with for 9 years for a situation where they feel like there's an even better opportunity No I really don't think I mean I I I agree with you in in a way, I get why I get more why fans would do it because they have an allegiance to the team. You know, there's a level of rejection. Why would you not want to be here? We've invested. We being we've invested. You know, our hearts in you. I I get that more. I don't get the media criticism. You know, because we would and we. I'm saying me and you. Me and you have left uh, left media places to go to other places. Everybody, everybody, every walk of life changes jobs. And nobody says, how dare you leave that, you know, employer that it's a business and NBA teams and professional and you're, sports you're teams are business. If you, if you, if you come out and say that, um, I think it, again, if you're a media person, I don't, I, I put, I put fans and I, I give pa- fans a pass. Oh yeah, that. sure. If you've, you know, been going to Warrior or Thunder game or watching rooting for Kevin Durant for nine years, of course you're going to be stung by that. But uh, I, I just don't see the critique. I, you're basically holding players, athletes, to a different standard than, you know, everybody else, uh, and, and expecting them to have this kind of romanticized loyalty when really it's all salary cap numbers. And you know, obviously it's not the cha- case with a, a player of that level. But most players, they could trade, they can cut, um, they can dump. So I don't know. It's just it's a business, and that's how it works. Speaking of the business, let me ask you this. This happened while you were away. Um, How comfortable or uncomfortable are you when when we in the media are talking about people's money? Oh, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up Um, because I have a beef there. So I understand why. I mean, pro sports, it's kind of like how can you not report on that because it's part of the like how the teams are put together. You know, you can't avoid that. There's a salary cap and there's, you know, there's a whole strategy to managing people's salaries. So I get that. I also get why people in our sport are interested in the head coach's salaries because 
that too is kind of a barometer, right? Like your coach gets a new contract. He's making now he's making $4 million a year. You know, that is an absurd amount of money, but in college football coaching world, that, that means you've reached a certain level. Um, what I don't get is there's there are people who report on bonuses that are just seem to be obsessed with coaching bonuses, athletic director salaries, commissioner salaries. Why? Do you are you interested in those things? Um, I am I am interested in, in terms of what how it relates to their job security. I mean, look, one of the Leach said something to me years ago, which I, I think is is significant. I think it, it when, you, when you think about it, it makes sense. And he's not a, a extravagant guy. Anybody who's ever been around him knows he is not spending his money on lavish things. Yes, he does have a, a, a house in Key West, but everything else about him is about as as buttoned down and low key as you could get. But, I think, by the way, that's true of. I mean, I don't think there's many college head coaches who live a lavish. I mean, they, first of all, they spend most of the time in their office, so they're they're not living that lavish lifestyle that would normally come with that kind of salary. Other than they usually live in a giant house, which becomes be, a recruiting yeah, and a team team center. They for live, them. they buy the giant house entirely to entertain recruits. It's not that they feel like they need a giant house. So it's funny because these are some of the richest men in America. Well. I don't know how far to go with that. You know what I mean? Richest, rich. Maybe the richest men in their communities, though. Yeah, for um, sure. And they don't and they the don't point, lead that lifestyle. The leech point was, you know, about somebody saying, "Well, what, you know, the money is outrageous or whatever." And his thing is was basically, "Yeah, but that shows how committed they are to you." And I and how committed they are to football. And I think now that could be a, a you know a, a euphemism there too. But I do think when you talk about the money and you talk about the investment, it also talks about the pressure that they're going to put. And when coaches get fired after three years, you know it's because there is so much money invested into athletics, and they're counting on it because you know I remember doing a story years and years ago about how big of a windfall it was for the community around the University of Texas and I'm not just talking about the the academics or the or the university but the the hotels the restaurants because Mac Brown turned turned Texas into a football powerhouse again you know you see that with what Nick Saban's done I remember that similar with what Urban Meyer has done at at places I mean if you have a a great football coach who does great things for the for the bottom line of the program it impacts everything. That's what Frank Beamer did when he turned Virginia Tech into a into a big time brand. Hotels get built, restaurants get you know become very successful. So I think that part of it is is kind of connected too. I think you could make a legitimate argument. And I've seen people make it that even at seven million dollars a year, Nick Saban is technically underpaid compared to the relative to the amount of revenue his program has generated since he's got there. Um, and the impact it's had, like you said, on the larger university, on the community around him. Some, you know, he is a CEO. CEOs get paid often extravagant amounts, but it's relative to the uh, value of the business that they're overseeing. And, and relative to the business he's overseeing, $7 million is probably on the low end. But uh, it is still obviously head and shoulders above anybody else in the sport. But you asked originally, do you get uncomfortable writing about people's money? <laughs> once you get to a certain level yes like 
the obsession i don't understand the obsession over bowl ceos salaries um even that's not the best thing i'll give you a good example you'll often see reporting around this would have been around a month or so ago when the conferences uh federal tax they get the reporters get a hold of their tax returns from the previous year and that's how oftentimes some of the conferences that don't go out of their way to publicize revenue um like the sec puts that out there on their own but a lot of conferences don't that's how you find out how much revenue they brought in the previous year how much per school uh, all of that stuff that's how you find out that larry scott's making four million dollars a year but included on that they have to include the salaries of not every employee, but I think like the top five or top ten. Pay. And you guys start getting into people who you and I deal with on a regular basis, associate commissioners, uh, media people. And I just – why does that need to be public knowledge? Like that's where it gets a little uncomfortable to me. They're not making extravagant amounts of money. They're people doing their jobs like you and me. Well, in the absence of actual college football news um, and the fact that I've been away for a couple weeks, this seems like a good time to dip into the emails. What do you think? Before we do that, let me ask you one quick question. Okay. Okay. You don't know I'm going to ask you this, but so this on, on Tuesday as we're taping, uh, I unveil these college positional rankings, which the first installment is on D linemen. We're going to do this for the rest of the month by, you know, O line, linebackers, et cetera. Uh, you know, especially this position group, because it feels like it's the differentiator between why the SEC has had so much success relative to the rest of the college football is because it's so loaded with D-line. How often do you, do you catch yourself when you cover something going, yeah, I feel this way, but I got to find a way to make this a little more all-encompassing across the country because it looks so heavy on one, one conference? Well, um, I could see that. I could see where you'd be concerned about that, but it, if you're really doing a ranking of the position groups nationally, I think you just got to stick to your gut. And if you feel like, you know, four of the top six are in the SEC, and you just got to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, it came to the point where I was talking to, uh, you know, some of this I talked to in the case of the D-line rankings, offensive line coaches, and I was talking to one, and he said, well, what's your, and I went through it, and one of the teams, he was like, ah, I just, they don't have the depth that, you know, went through, and it's just, uh, you know, you catch yourself. He's going, where's this team? And I'm like, well, they're in the just missed the cut, you know, kind of. It it just, I, I didn't want to have eight SEC teams. And I didn't just, and a lot of the guys I talked to were not just guys who coached in the SEC. It's just, um, I don't know. I hate well, to what say conference it. do you think in general gets overlooked for their talent up front? Uh, I would say sometimes the Pac-12 does. Look, one of my top five, my number three team is Utah. I think most co- diehard college football fans would struggle to name a Utah player on the defense. And they've been really good, and they produce first-round picks. I mean, look, one of the best defensive linemen in the country last year played at Oregon. Until the draft came, a lot of people probably didn't know about him. Right. That's what I was going to say. I think that the Pac-12, or the, I mean, we'd have to look up through the NFL, but I feel like the Pac-12 has done a pretty decent job of turning out high caliber defensive linemen and yet they don't have that reputation like you said that the sec does and you know i can remember i think andy stables on point did a study of where the top defensive linemen come from they tend to come you know overwhelmingly from the southeast Mm -hmm. but you know when you talk about utah in particular you know a lot of their guys they're going 
to the place where I was just on vacation. They're going to Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, look, the, a lot of a lot of Pacific Islanders and have developed into big time defensive linemen. I mean, one of those guys who's a Utah native who ended up at Oregon, Halote Nata, great college player, but it's you know stalwart in the NFL. There are a bunch of those guys. Danny Shelton, who went to Washington, is you know was a real impact guy as well. There's a bunch of them. USC obviously has had a lot of success with them. So. Anyway, that was just kind of uh, something I wanted to throw at you. Let's so let's go to the mailbag. Okay, as always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail dot com. First one, Ryan Hartwig says, Stuart and Bruce, been a regular listener for over a year now, and it's got me through the monotonous baby bottle washing since October. You and I know all about that. I hate the baby bottle washing, by the way. <sighs> so much of it uh, never ends. His question is, which football power do you believe has the propensity? to be the next to have a decade-long slump, such as Texas, Tennessee, Michigan, and Miami recently. Obviously, coaching changes and bad replacements cannot be predicted, but do you see the cracks in the foundation of any of the powers currently at the top of their game? Since you've seen this question, I'm going to have you go first. I think that, um, again, he said when... he said, "When they're at the top, it's obviously very hard when a school is at the top to say ah, they're going to they're about to go through a downfall. It would be easier, obviously, if we were to look at a couple of teams that have already slipped and said that's just going to continue." I will say that you know we went through this drama last year with LSU almost firing Les Miles, and I think that because of the competitiveness of the division that LSU was in, and because frankly. They are not a program that has always been at a high level. They have been in this century, but not always. I think if they were to fire him prematurely or, you know, if if they were to have a terrible season this year and they had to I could that would be a school that I could see, you know, going into a a downfall until they were to hire the right coach. See, I think they still have too much talent there. I think Dave Aranda will make Les Miles a better coach. So I would disagree on that. Again, I'm not predicting them to have a downfall this year, but I'm saying that the the infrastructure, the the circumstances there are such that if they do go through this soap opera, it might be hard to. It might be a be careful what you wish for situation. You know who I thought you were going to say, and maybe it's it's not right in line with the being, being a true true powerhouse, but I thought you were going to say South Carolina because they had a you know a couple of huge seasons and. I think that it's just, it's tough. And but I don't not, consider them a power to begin with. No, I know. I mean, I think what's tough now for them is I think Tennessee is getting back to where they used to be, and that, I think, does the expense of South Carolina. Um, I don't know if I have a gr- really good answer to this. I really – I if there's a team in the Pac-12, I don't know who, it, you know who I would point out it being. Well, let's talk about Oregon for a second because I feel like since Chip Kelly left – and especially since Marcus Mariota has been gone, there's been this almost like people waiting for the other shoe to drop, that the, the cracks are starting to show that this can't possibly continue. And then last year, the cracks did show. Um, they still ended up having what I consider to be a perfectly uh, respectable season, but it wasn't the national championship contention that they've been used to. Is Oregon a contender for what he's talking about? I think they would be one of you know one of the teams that would come to mind. I would say this: so Chip Kelly left, and they almost won the national title. So, yeah, and 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 at that point, you thought you know this is just going to keep rolling forever. But I think that we learned the following year that Mariota 
help mask some real problems there, most notably defense. Uh, now they've brought in Brady Hoke to try to rescue that. But of course, on the other side of it, they also just lost Scott Frost. So um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think I, I think their best days are behind them for a while. I'm not going to predict a decade long. What he's asking us to predict is 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 a tall ask. So I'm not going to predict a decade of mediocrity for Oregon. I do think that it could be a few years before they get back to 12-win territory, which people kind of took for granted that it was just going to keep happening every year uh, when Chip Kelly was there or early Helfrich, when you realize that's really hard to do. That's really hard to sustain. All right. Next question. Um, All right. This question comes from Joe. He says this in the last – well, it's no longer this past week. The last podcast I was on, I believe – uh, we got a question about comparison between the trajectories of Stanford and Northwestern, particularly noting the academic re- reputation and location of Stanford being uh, pertinent difference makers. But what about Stanford compared to a program in similar academic reputation and location, that being Cal? Sonny Dykes has been taking a lot of cues from Stanford by recruiting nationally and recently seems to finally be building success despite a slow and rocky start. But what else needs to happen for Berkeley to finally break into consistent success it's a good point you know if stanford can be this good why can't cal uh and they actually have more ac- more academic flexibility to get football players in than stanford does uh, so i will point that out i i think what it co- some of the challenges stanford has or some sorry some of the challenges cal has is when it comes back to commitment to football they have a lot of um just the commitment to football is not as strong as it is at a lot of other places. And I think that's what Sonny Dykes battles on a daily basis. You know, look, I think he's done a nice job fixing some problems. You know, Jeff Tedford had a really good run, but at the end, you know, there were huge APR issues and there was a lot of stuff where you just don't have the same resources that you would think you would have. You certainly don't have them the way you have them at USC, not even as the aforementioned Oregon. I don't think they have the same resources that Washington has. So there's a lot of battles there that I think that that I think you're fighting that are behind the scenes. They had a really bad AD before uh, she is now gone. Now Penn State has a really bad AD, and I think that's not helping things. But I think that they're just not doing. Th- I I just do not think that place is is structured at this point to 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 do things the way that most elite football programs do. I think it's to kind of what you mentioned before with the Mike Leach comment about, you know, why salary matters. I don't think Cal is one of those schools that is heavily committed to football. And part of that is um, out of their control. Well, not out of their control, but part of it is just how can you be at a time when they've gone through, you know, the the state system has gone through massive uh, cuts. You know, Cal Berkeley has been feeling the brunt of that. Um, they had to athletic wise, they had to cut a bunch of teams a few years ago that then got rescued at the last second. So they're facing pressure on that front. And then it's just been, from what I understand, a nonstop churn of, um, uh, of employees in the athletic department. So between all of those things, I just don't think that the, you know, I don't think they're all in on football right now. And Sonny Dykes is I mean, you remember last offseason, Sonny Dykes seemed like he was trying to get out of there. Uh, he interviewed for – the specifics are, are escaping me at this point. He interviewed for several different jobs, and he was pretty um, – uh, didn't seem to be trying to hide it. So I think that speaks to, says something as well. 
Um, John Theerwechter, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Guys, it seems to me that the scheduling model that the Big Ten will be employing this year, which is nine conference games requiring one Power 5 opponent and eliminating FCS schools from future schedules, could end up being very costly when considering the playoffs. A very similar model seems to have cost the Pac-12. Other than creating inventory for TV rights, is this wise, especially given that the SEC and ACC have absolutely no intentions to follow suit? That's an interesting question, I think. You want me to answer uh, it? Um, you, want, you, you want to jump first and then I'll go then? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's risky, but because they're not doing it alone, I mean, now basically there are more conferences doing it that way than not when you consider um, Pac-12 is already doing it. The Big 12 will basically be doing that when it adds the uh, championship game. I don't. They don't have that FCS. The Big Ten has been the most, uh, you know, uh, firm about trying to eliminate FCS opponents. Uh, I don't think the Big 12 is trying to do that, but they're in a similar situation with the only the uh, three conference or non-conference games. Um, even the ACC with the well. You know, some of their schools really schedule up, and, and some of them do what UNC did and put two one, uh, FCS teams on there. Is it risky? Yes. But in the system we have now, where the playoff uh, committee has made it clear just how much they care about strength of schedule, top 25 wins, I, I think it's worth it. I, this In the BCS, you were, I mean, I think of the, um, in the BCS, you were heavily penalized for losing a game, no matter who it was to. And I think of Oregon 2011 played LSU first game of the season, both top five teams. They lose the game. They end up losing only one game the rest of the season. And they beat Stanford and when the final and they win the Pac-12 and when the final BCS rankings come out, they're behind Stanford. Uh, and, and what was the difference there? Stanford played, uh, didn't play a game like that out of conference. So... All that is a long way of saying that this is not the BCS. This is the playoff system. I think the reward outweighs the risk. And also the thing about the TV rights, um, Jim Delaney and the ADs and this movement there, it was less about TV than it was about getting fans in the stands. And we've seen this trend nationally where uh, in-stadium attendance is declining. And I think they reached a point where they said, this is ridiculous that we're trying to get people to come to games against Murray State. You know, we well, need to make these non-conference games attractive. Well, I think, again, this, this is a twofold SEC versus everybody else question because, one, the SEC, until the SEC gets shut out of the playoff, there, there isn't so much of an impetus. But the other thing is <clears throat> that they, and this is kind of reminds me of something Jim Harbaugh told me when he was at Stanford a while back, you know, Penn State could schedule whoever, and they're still probably going to get 100,000 people in the stands. Whereas a lot of other schools and the SEC, I think that holds true. They're still they could schedule whoever their fans are going to turn out. But I think you know? the list of schools that you would describe as that is is getting smaller. You know, it Alabama, smaller, but- uh, Alabama will always fill the stadium. Ohio State will always fill the stadium. Um, but you know, I was at a Michigan Ohio State game a few years ago where the student section wasn't full at kickoff. Um, Michigan State, as good as they've been, yeah. But what about the SEC schools? The most yeah. of those schools—that's that's why I'm saying it's different. Florida, I know, has had some trouble selling out lately for those, you know, early season FCS games. But yeah, you're right. The passion is strong there, and and generally speaking, they're not going to have trouble filling the stadium. Um, there's just this 
you know, by the way, Nick Saban is the one coach who's been pushing for nine conference games in that league. Otherwise, there's just this general consensus there that we have it so hard. Our schedule is just so hard the way it is. We can't possibly add a ninth game. Well, that's true right now. That's true if you're in the SEC West. But if you're in the SEC East, I would argue that your eight-game conference schedule is not all that impressive. Other teams and other conferences are playing much tougher ones. And so there will come a time. I I do believe there will come a time when the SEC gets penalized for it. Probably not for their champion, but, you know, a situation where you're trying to get a second team in and it's, you know, like Alabama in 2011 and it seems so obvious to their fans that the team should be in and the committee looks at it and goes, well, you played eight conference games, three of those teams maybe, two or three of those teams were ranked, you didn't really play anybody out of conference. Uh, Sorry, that's not good enough. And as soon as they do that, the minute an SEC team gets left out that the SEC fans think should have been in, uh, they'll go to nine conference games. Yes. Less likely of that when there's four as opposed to two, though. All right. Two more here. Um, shoot. I didn't copy this guy's name, but it ended with Boomer Sooner. Um, sorry. I'll try to give you your credit here in a little bit. Hey, guys. Love the podcast. How do you decipher all the praise and hyperbole out there from coaches? Sometimes it's really true and the hype is warranted. Other times come fall, it's dumbfounding where all the hype was coming from. I find it interesting how many times you see a coach comment on an individual or position group in a positive or even negative way for that matter, only to see the opposite result on the field. So I'm curious, um, he's basically curious how do we weed out which, when the hyperbole is, is merited and when it's not. I would answer this where I think you know over time, we've both been doing this 15, 20 years, who's... Uh, whose take you probably not only say you don't throw away as much as others, but you you've seen you know anecdotal evidence saying okay this guy seems to be spot on. I don't know if you listened to our podcast the other day with Brady Quinn, but I told a story where Mark Snyder, who is now at uh, Michigan State, he's an old Marshall coach and been at a lot of places. I've known him for years. He told me something back when. This was in the Maurice Claret recruiting class, I believe it was the same year, where Brady's now brother-in-law, A.J. Hawk, was in that class. A.J. Hawk was not a big recruit. He was, I think, a three-star guy. And, you know, I didn't say who the name was, but Brady kind of, you know, said who it was. Mike D'Andre, I don't know if people are going to remember that name. He was a five-star guy. And I remember, you know, months before, before uh, that group reported, I remember Snyder telling me, you know, he was the linebacker coach at the time. AJ Hawk is that guy. He will be the the star of this group. He was really high on Bobby Carpenter, who was who was I think a four star guy. But so my point is, a lot of times you get coaches who can really they will distill it down into the real thing. Now they may not want to be quoted on it at the time or have it attached to them. But those are guys you turn to and go, okay, I believe this guy's perspective maybe more than somebody else who's giving you glowing quotes and wants to, you know, is going to pump up everything or really is trying to pump up the recruiting class. I mean, I saw this when I worked on Meat Market, what coaches would and recruiters would tell kids or what they would say. And and you you got to take it with a grain of salt. But I think, you know, who you can who you lean on more maybe than others. You remember, uh, I think this guy just finished his career last year, cornerback Wayne Lyons. Sure, from Stanford. Stanford then finished his career at Michigan. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being at a Stanford practice. He had just finished his freshman season where he got hurt, so he barely played. And 
almost offhandedly without even like making a big deal of it he, he uh, david shaw said you know well he'll be contending for the thorpe award one day and i remember thinking whoa that's <laughs> that's an awfully lofty projection for a guy who's barely played he must be really special he ended up starting i think for a year or maybe two but he wasn't anything close to that and from that point forward i realized david shaw is a guy who throws hyperbole around uh, david shaw though, quite a bit david shaw though on the flip side of that was gushing about christian mccaffrey uh i remember i went up there to work on that virtual reality story and christian mccaffrey hadn't done that much at that point and he talked about him like he was gonna be what he became last year well clearly that was warranted um i mean i know you we've talked about this recently urban meyer on signing day will give you some great quotes yeah urban meyer is probably the king of hyperbole although he also will do what um was mentioned in the email sometimes and and not trash a, a player, but he. I remember he got to when he first got to Ohio State. He said something. Like the receivers, some other receivers. He, the receivers are garbage right now. So what I was going to say is, I would trust a guy if a guy if a coach is talking to you off the record and says like, hey, you know, this guy's really good. I would trust that more than on the record quotes because the coaches are smart and they use the media for certain you know the way they want to use it. So if they want to sing praise for a guy there's probably a reason for that and if they say something like Urban Meyer saying the receivers are trash or whatever I think he said trash or garbage he, clearly he's sending a message he wants to motivate those guys ah. so you have to take it for a grain of salt when it's on the record because there may be an agenda behind that quote I also think it, it fits in a couple of different categories like you said I mean I had this I just transcribed a bunch of this stuff from a, a trip uh in April and I listened back to it. I asked a, a specific coach about a certain player who's a big recruit, and he and he literally says, "Are we on the record, or is that thing on?" I think he said. And at that point, I know, okay, that kid's not that good, you know. And then he started to explain why. And when you have somebody who says that, and you know, it's all this stuff is on background. I feel like that's a guy that he's telling me what he believes, and I'm getting the straight scoop. Now, I think there's the other side of it where sometimes. You know, some coaches miss the boat on certain guys, it proves to be. And you sit back and go, wait, that guy actually wasn't that good. Maybe this, you know, whatever. And I think there's, you know, I, look, I like that part of the job. I think it's fascinating to see. It's all part of the evaluation, everything. And I I mean, this time of year, I eat that stuff up. Um. Lastly, you remember we played the seventh year senior game last time? All right. Who we got? We got a really good one. Um. I'd like to nominate Deontay Cooper to be recognized as seventh-year senior. Yeah. Cooper was part of Steve Sarkeesian's first full recruiting class at Washington in 2010, and he's going to play for San Jose State this year. A uh, fairly high-ranked recruit who showed flashes of greatness here and there but went through multiple ACL, ACL injuries at Washington. This guy is literally a set, like I, I joke about it, but he is literally a seventh-year senior. I didn't know. I remember reading about this earlier this offseason. I didn't realize you could get a seventh year. I didn't even know that was in the uh, an NCAA possibility. But he's been there so long, or he's been playing for so long. I was actually at a Washington spring practice, Jake Locker's last year, spring of 2010, and they were like, look at this early enrollee running back, Deontay Cooper. He could be really something. Six years later, here we are. He's still playing college football. Yeah, that'll do it. The other thing that I think will make makes a guy feel like he's been around forever is wait if, uh, if Tate Martell becomes a five-year guy. Where it's a kid who, who like committed somewhere in eighth grade or David Sills, one of those guys. If they actually end up playing a long time, 
you know, they're going to have like the staying power because their 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 recruitment spanned like on basically a decade long. You know who that is right now? Gunnar Keel. Yeah, could I you? Could I mean, Gunnar Keel is is still playing college football. Um, he was on the Notre Dame. He was a redshirt freshman on the Notre Dame team that went to the national title game. And his recruitment, because he mainly because he switched schools so many times, was you know high, in the news, highly reported for at least a year before that. Yeah, that's fair. That's definitely fair. And like you said, because he transferred and bounced around, he has a recognizable name. He has older brothers who maybe for a Big Ten fan, you remember them. Maybe if you're, uh, I don't know if Blair is his uncle or his dad. I think Blair is his uncle, but he was a you know pretty well remembered Notre Dame punter quarterback of the. 80s, I think. I mean, kind of like the Tate Martell example you just gave. At various times, his name, going back to recruiting, he was attached to Indiana when Kevin Wilson first got there. That was a big commit. Yeah. LSU. Then he decommits from LSU. And the last mile says, you know, he doesn't have the chest for, for, I guess he didn't have the chest to come down here. Notre Dame, Cincinnati. We got anything else? There's another guy, by the way, much more obscure. Um, I don't know if you've been following the career trajectory of Zach Klein. I, you know what I actually thought was I read a story about him this weekend. Yeah, Zach Klein is going to do what I thought was the impossible and play at, or I don't know if play, but be at five different schools in five years. He started at Cal as a redshirt freshman. He lost the job to Jared Goff, at which point he transferred to I want to say. Indiana State. Oh, here it is. No, there was another school in between. They, yeah. He he was committed to Oregon State, or there was they thought he was going to transfer to Oregon State, but instead he went to Butt College, Aaron Rodgers' uh, alma mater. Butte, not Butt College. Too. Butte College. Sorry. Um, then he transferred to Indiana State. Then he transferred back to Cal, or at least they thought he was going to transfer back to Cal. And now he's going to finish up at Fresno State. Yeah, that's one. By the way, do you remember the name John English? No. He was a two-lane quarterback. I want to say he may have gone to like five schools. Um, grad transfer has really made it, uh, you know, has really changed this this kind of story because now, but, but you can do that and not sit out the year. So, you know, in his case, by throwing a junior college into the mix and an FCS school, he basically did every move possible. Once you, you know, transfer to a JC, so you don't have to sit out that year. Transfer to a FCS, you don't have to sit out that year. Grad transfer, so you don't have to sit out that year. By the way, John English? Yeah. In five seasons, John English played at Michigan State, Iowa State, Tulane, Allegheny Community College, and Delgado Junior College. I don't he, understand he the first, like, there there was two, there were three FBS schools there at the beginning. You would think you would have had to sit out. Uh, he needed a court order to play every Saturday, according to this Washington Post story. Wow. His dad so part of this that made it kind of unique was his dad was Wally English who was a who was who was a co- coach at Tulane. So that added into it. Um very yeah, I remember he was a pretty good player. I do remember him. So Well, we appreciate you listening to our NBA podcast today. Um we threw a little college football in at the end. Uh as always, you can send your emails to the audiblepod at gmail.com. And subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Bruce, next, hard to believe that less than a week from now, we will be in Hoover, Alabama for SEC Media Days. So for our second installment later this week, we will start setting the table for Conference Media Days. Very nice. I'm looking forward to that. We'll see you next time. <laughs>